Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for giving us your holy word. May we receive its truths this morning with faith and love, lay them up on our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. One last time. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. This is God's word. You shall not murder. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I've given you an outline there in your bulletin, a seven-point outline. And uh, first, I wanted to review what we covered the last two sermons that we spoke about, the Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Murder. We looked at the way in which the Sixth Commandment applies to harm that we do to the names and bodies and souls of other people. In this message, we're going to consider the harm that we can do to our own name, our own body, and our own soul. We also looked in those previous messages at what Scripture teaches are the precursors, the sins that often give rise to various forms of murder. We looked at sinful anger. We looked at envy and discontentment and sinful hatred. We also covered the ways in which murder and all of its forms can be done. We can murder people with our own hands. We can murder them in our minds. We can murder them with our words, with our tongues, with false accusations. We can murder people in writing by consenting to someone else's mistreatment or murder. We can, hinder, we can murder people by not hindering the wrongful deaths of others. We can murder people by failing to show mercy to them when they're in need, and for civil magistrates in particular. When magistrates do not execute people for capital crimes and release them into society, every crime that person commits after that, that magistrate is guilty of. We considered situations which make murder more heinous than others, like murdering for no reason. We talk about cold-blooded killers, murdering in the face of oaths, murdering public persons like magistrates, kings, or ministers, murdering family members or close relations, parents, children, siblings, and murdering the innocent. We also looked at what God says makes murder such an accursed evil. Murder in all of its forms is an attack directly on God himself. Because mankind is the image of God. That's one thing that our culture does not understand. Mankind is not an animal. Human beings are not animals. We're in the image of God. That's why murder is so serious. Murder makes people like the devil instead of godly. Since Satan is called a murderer. When people murder, they're like the devil, not like their creator. Murder makes us accursed. Murder brings misery into the world by depriving people of their lives or their good names. And if unrepented of, murder binds men over to hell. Then we looked at the worst form of murder and the last message, soul murder. This is a violation of the sixth commandment that elders and pastors in particular are prone to. But everyone is capable of it. You can murder someone else's soul. Every one of us disciples people. We all have influences on others, and everyone does this. We all do this, whether we're into it or not, whether we realize it or not. We are either a good or a bad example, a good or a bad influence on the people that know us and look at us, 
look up to us and watch us. Older siblings, whether you like it or not, you set an example that younger siblings are likely to watch and imitate. Peers set an example that people are likely to follow. And ministers and elders who open and teach from the word of God and live out their Christian lives before the sheep of Christ, they are discipling those sheep in two ways, directly by what they teach, but also by how they act, what their priorities are, by what they do and by what they don't do, what they say and what they don't say, what they teach and what they tolerate. Soul murder is committed by setting a bad example. It can be, set, it can be uh, committed by, uh, by enticing others to sin. And for ministers in particular, soul murder is committed by starving people of God's word, directly poisoning people with false teaching, refusing to separate from or discipline false teachers, or refusing to refute false doctrine that is known and being taught to the people that you shepherd, and by infecting them with scandalous or hypocritical lifestyles. And that brings us to our final message On the sixth commandment, it's such a short commandment, but you shall not murder. How all of this can be applied to ourselves. How all of it applies to ourselves. So look at point number two there in your outline. Applying the sixth commandment to ourselves, body and soul. The sixth commandment does not merely apply to others. Dear ones, you've got to get that. It's not just that we're supposed to not murder other people or preserve the lives of others. We're supposed to not murder ourselves either. And preserve our own life and our own souls. We ourselves count as images of God to ourselves. Our lives, our names, our souls count. And we should use all lawful endeavors to preserve and cause our own name, our own body, and our own soul to thrive. You and I are every bit as obligated to preserve our own life, our own name, and our own soul as we are to preserve the lives, names, and souls of every other image of God around us. And our Lord taught all mankind to take a special interest in the eternal well-being of our own soul. That's the commandment of God, to be interested in ourselves in that way. Every person here has a soul that is immortal, that is a stirring thing to think about. Every one of us has this most glorious possession, this bit of immortality that will never cease to exist And dear ones, I want to tell you, our suicidal, our self-destructive culture, it doesn't get that point. If they did, self-destruction and suicide, it would never come into anyone's mind. Because in the ultimate sense, suicide is not possible. You can't go out of existence. We exist consciously after physical death. No one is able to end their immortal soul's life. People get to where, I just can't take it anymore. Life's just too painful. It's too hard. And so I'm just going to end it all. You can't. The scriptures teach us man has two parts, body and soul. And the Lord Jesus taught us all that when you weigh the soul against everything else in the whole world, the soul is infinitely more valuable. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Reflect on that. God incarnate, our creator, 
put the value of your soul on a balance opposite the entire world. And your soul is infinitely more valuable than everything else in the world. Our, our bodily life is precious to us too. Yes, it should be. Our bodies were made from the dust of the ground, but our souls are the very breath of God into our nostrils, which makes us eternal and covenantal living beings. Our body and soul are the most precious possessions that we have, and our soul outweighs the world. So whatever you value in this world, your soul is more important, infinitely more important than any of your goals, any of your aspirations. Anything that you're invested in. The question, it's a rhetorical question. Jesus was great at rhetorical questions. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What's the answer? None. What, what do you gain if you have the whole world? That's one thing I love. Well, it's, it's sad, but it's fascinating about ancient Egypt. They were determined to take the whole world with them. And they couldn't. There's no profit to it. What does he mean? What, what good is it if you lose your soul? What does he mean by lose your soul? Here's what he means. He means dying in your sins, unforgiven, unredeemed. It doesn't matter what you have if that's how you die. Justly condemned by the holy law of God. What does he mean when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and thus finds his life? What does he mean by that? That's the one who repents of their sin and dies with Christ to their former life. They're crucified with Christ. They lose their life. And for those of you that know the Lord, aren't you thankful you lost the old version of yourself? Good riddance. Because then you find the true purpose of your existence, which is to worship and love the Lord. There's nothing that can be thought of, nothing that you can imagine or dream about that is more foolish than being reckless or careless with your life or with your soul. You get one life, one, one soul, one body. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said this, though you lose all else, remember to save your soul. It is engraved upon every creature as with the point of a diamond to look to its own preservation. If the life of the body must be preserved, much more the life of the soul. If he who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever, much more he who does not provide for his own soul. 1 Timothy 5.8 A main thing implied in the commandment is a special care for preserving our souls. The soul is a jewel, a diamond set in a ring of clay. Christ puts the soul in balance with the world and it outweighs all. Matthew 16.26 as I just read to you. The soul is a looking glass in which some rays of divine glory shine. It is a celestial spark lighted by the breath of God. The body was made of the dust, but the soul is of a more noble origin. God breathed into man a living soul. Genesis 2, verse 7, end quote. And so we want to apply this command to ourselves. Apply, you shall not murder, to you. I need to apply that to me. Look at point number three, taking care of ourselves physically. Scripture commends physical health. The Bible commends it and well-being as a blessing that we ought to seek for. Third John chapter one, verse two. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. 
There's a lot of sick people. There's always sick people on our church's prayer list. What do we pray for? That they would be healthy. When I was in seminary, I heard a story about a minister who'd been preaching for many decades and he was greatly used of God and he was a special guest there at the seminary and I was told the story, someone asked him, what, what's the secret to longevity in ministry? Expecting to get a, a very spiritual answer of some kind. And the guy said, get eight hours of sleep every night. We all have a bill to pay to this body. And if you don't pay the bill, it will revolt on you. It's the will of the creator of our bodies that we take care of our bodies, that we nourish them, that we never inflict purposeful harm upon ourselves. We're also not to needlessly endanger our bodies by driving recklessly or being risky or being a thrill seeker in stunts or other pursuits and things like that. God gave each of us a, an instinct to survive and to preserve our own life. We drink water when we're thirsty because it, it would hurt us if we don't. We eat when we're hungry. We sleep when we're tired. We should use all lawful means of diet, exercise, and godly recreation to be physically healthy. The commandment, you shall not murder, requires us to use all the proper means for the preservation of our life physically. 1 Timothy 4.8 Bodily exercise profits a little. So there you go. It's a, it's, it profits a little to exercise. That's not much motivation, is it? <laughs> But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So being physically fit and healthy is a good thing. It profits a little. But it's not as profitable as godliness. We ought to strive to be physically well. We should be healthy in what we eat. We should try to exercise. We should have moderation in food and drink. And we should take medication if we're sick, if it would help us. We should get medical procedures done if they can help us get well. Physical health, physical well-being is something that we ought to pursue, but we can't allow it to become an idol. And we also have to recognize that at times it's God's will that we be sick. It's God's will at times that we be sick. And eventually some sickness is probably going to kill you and me. Vanity or obsession with one's health or with one's physical appearance you know, like any other good thing, it can become an idol that we'll sacrifice everything to. And I'll tell you, we live in a culture that's obsessed with it, don't we? Nevertheless, the scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Listen, and you are not your own. Your body does not belong to you. It's not yours to do with whatever you want. We are stewards of our bodies, just like we're stewards of our time, our money, our abilities, our God-given talents. We can murder ourselves. We can violate the sixth commandment by not caring about ourselves. And by the way, there's nothing humble about that. That's foolish. That's sinful not to care about yourself. By not taking care of yourself. By being reckless with your body. That counts as a violation of the sixth commandment just as much as mistreating others. Look at point number four there. Conviction from the Holy Spirit never leads to self-destruction. Y'all need to catch this one, please. What about the self-esteem movement and all the, the rhetoric we hear today about needing to, to love ourselves and dote on ourselves and be true to ourselves? What the world around us means by love yourself or be yourself, what they, what they usually mean is 
celebrate every evil, selfish desire you have and embrace that as just who you are. Obviously, that's not what scripture is talking about. The biblical doctrine of man's sinfulness does not mean that we are to hate ourselves in the sense of seeking our own harm or trying to hurt or punish ourselves. I knew a guy that he would not allow himself to eat anything he liked if, if he sinned in certain ways. He would, he would go through these the season, seasons. He called them putting himself in exile. I remember going to his house and we knew this guy liked ice cream and so he got all his ice cream out and we all got ice cream and he's not eating ice cream. Like, why is he not eating ice cream? And someone told me, he's in exile. What does that mean? Well, he's, he's punishing himself. Folks, that's not healthy. Why, why is that not healthy? Because Jesus already took that punishment away. It's not our place to, to punish ourselves. There's a sense in which, yes, we, we loathe and we abhor ourselves because of our sins. But, but here's the key difference. The self-loathing that we have because the Holy Spirit of God is convicting us of our sins, it is never a despairing or a self-destructive thing. It's always accompanied by hope in the mercy and grace of God. I always used to wonder, long ago, I used to have debates with people when I was in college. Did, did Judas repent? I mean, it says he did. He, he, was, he felt terrible that, that Jesus had been crucified. And I wondered, I wonder if he repented and someone pointed out, but Jesus said it would be better if he had never been born, right? Like, oh yeah, that's right. Probably. Probably didn't really repent. But how do we know it wasn't real repentance? Because it was hopeless. It was total despair. He went and hung himself. The self-loathing that we have when the Spirit of God convicts us is always accompanied by hope in the mercy of God. It is something that the Spirit teaches us. He teaches us, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, what my word says about you is true. You fall short of the glory of God. You need to repent in dust and ashes. But that same Spirit who teaches us that also teaches us that Jesus is a loving Savior. And that He will save you if you repent and come to Him and believe in Him. And so the conviction of the Spirit is never a self-destructive thing. It never leads to that. And if seeing your sin causes you to totally despair and, and you see no hope anywhere, then you're not thinking about Jesus and his love and mercy the way that you need to and the way that the scriptures speak of it. You know, Job, Job made the mistake of, of wanting an audience with God so God could explain to him why all these calamities happened. And God's response to Job is not to answer him, but to ask him a bunch of questions. You tell me first. He asks him 77 questions, which show clearly that Job is ignorant and foolish, and he's sinful for daring to contend with the Almighty. And the opening question is for the ages. God says to, to Job, you answer me first. You, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now you prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And then God strips his pride down to the ground with questions about where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Where did the springs of water come from underground? How much do the mountains weigh? Why are there certain types of animals that, that you can domesticate and others that you can't? Have you ever entered the treasury of snow or hail? Do you know about wind and where it comes from? Do you know how and when and where and why it rains and how grass grows? And can you arrange the stars for us, Job? Can you strike the world with lightning? Job, he can't answer any of these questions. And then he recognizes how little he really knows and how completely inappropriate it is for him to question anything God does and anything that comes to pass. 
Job 42, verses 4 through 6. Says, listen, please, and let me speak. This is Job speaking. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the key. When the Spirit of God convicts us, yes, we abhor ourselves, but we repent and we come to the mercy of God. And that gives us hope. God doesn't leave us in despair. He doesn't leave us just abhorring ourselves because of our sin. He repents in dust and ashes. Job knew his Redeemer lived. And his faith in that Redeemer never wavered. And so I want to emphasize to you, yes, but people have said, but doesn't the Bible tell us that we're supposed to despise ourselves and despise our sin and everything? Yes, it does. But God never leaves us just sitting there despising ourselves. He raises us up out of the the muck and the mire and plants us upon the rock of the gospel and gives us faith and repentance. Job understood my Redeemer is alive. The self-loathing and sin that the Holy Spirit brings to us, it does not produce a desire for self-harm. It's not a self-destructive thing like it was for Judas. It's a hopeful thing. It drives us to the Redeemer. It's an acknowledgement that the judgment of God that he's passed on us in Scripture, yes, it's true. We are sinful. We are totally helpless. It's all true what God has said. We pass that judgment on ourselves that the word passes, and then we repent and we look to Christ's mercy for our salvation. So the self-loathing that we experience because of the Holy Spirit's work in us, it's not self-hatred, and it's not a desire to hurt ourselves. Biblical self-loathing over sin is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work of grace that always leads us to the cross of Christ and the love and mercy of God. God is ready to forgive. He is merciful and kind to all the repentant. The God and creator of all things delights in mercy. But a prerequisite to repentance is the biblical conviction of sin and the self-loathing over it. Just remember, Self-loathing is not a desire to hurt ourselves or self-harm or a desire for self-destruction. When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, it is so he can lead us to Jesus so that we can live the rest of our days clothed in his mercy, grace, and salvation. God delights in those things. Look at the point number five, obeying the sixth commandment toward ourselves. Now, I've been asked the question before, does the Bible promote selfishness? When it comes to our walk with Christ and when it comes to our soul, does the Bible promote selfishness? Well, God's word never promotes sinful selfishness in any form at all. But God does teach all people that the most important facet of your existence is your eternal soul. Is that you will live forever. Physical death will not be the end of you, but only marks the beginning of your eternal existence. And that eternal existence will be either happy and blessed beyond description, or it will be miserable beyond description. It's not selfish to care about your eternal destiny, dear ones. It's wise to do that. It's foolish to care only about this world to the exclusion of the next. You know, Jesus told an important parable. It's an amazing thing. In Luke chapter 12, there's, Jesus is talking about whoever acknowledges me, I will acknowledge them before the angels of God on the day of judgment. And he's giving them this incredible teaching about who he is. And then someone says, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus tells this parable in response to this guy. 
in Luke 12, 15, he says, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he told a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Dear ones, the primary way in which self-murder is expressed is idolatry. And the primary way that manifests itself is having eyes that are fixed on this world with no concern for the next. There are times that professing Christians even can act like practical atheists. It's like we don't even think that there's going to be a day of judgment. It's like we don't even think there is an eternal life. People also manifest carelessness and laziness toward their soul when they joke about the next world. I've had people joke with me that I've witnessed to. Where do you think you're going to go when you die? After laughing, saying, well, up or down, I guess. Followed by chuckling. Or in response to the question, where do you think you're going? To hell if I don't change my ways. Had a guy tell me that once. To hell if I don't change my ways. Hardy har har. That's not funny. There's nothing more serious in a person's life than the eternal and unchangeable destiny of their immortal souls. I have a question for you. How often do you sit and contemplate the health and well-being of your soul? Not your body. We always feel that. We know if we're getting sick, a lot of people are sick right now. You can feel that. But can you feel the lack of health in your soul at times? J.C. Ryle wrote an entire book on Titus 2, verse 6. You know, Titus 2, verse 6 says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. <clears throat> and you know that word sober-minded, that the Greek term translated, if you look it up in the lexicons, it means to be sane. Able to reason and think properly in a sane manner. To be in one's right mind. To think straight. To reason correctly. Now, I have a question. Why would young men be singled out by the Holy Spirit as the, as the special target of elders to say that to? Be sane. Don't be insane in the way you live your life. That's a rhetorical question. But there's a sense in which this exhortation, it applies to everybody on earth. We have eternal and immortal souls, which we ought to have the utmost concern about. If we are absolutely certain to live for eternity in either blessedness in heaven or misery in hell, why do we act like this world is all there is? Jesus says of the man whose eyes are focused only on this world, you fool. Tonight, you're going to die. Your soul is going to be required of you. Then whose are all these these things going to go to? You fool, your soul is going to be required of you today. Justified or condemned, accepted or rejected, heaven or hell, such will be required of us too one day. And when I went to seminary down there in Clinton, Mississippi, on the outskirts of Jackson, there was a beautiful cemetery that was about a half a mile away from from the 
seminary and I would walk around that cemetery and I tell you to see, the, the thing that always got to me was all the people that died when they were younger than I was at the time. There was a whole section of that cemetery for teenagers and kids and people in their 20s. And just think, that was it. That's the only life they ever lived. And now they're either in heaven or they're in hell forever. World without end, it'll never change. You know, God taught his people to sing about this. Psalm 90, verse 9, For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then he prays this in the psalm, verse 14 of Psalm 90, Satisfy us early with your mercy. You know what he means by that? Save us when we're young. Save us when we're young, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. We so often speak as though we've got all this time to dispose of. But dear one, that's the one thing you don't know. You don't know. God wrote the days in his eternal plan, but that knowledge is not revealed to us. There is nothing more foolish than living as if you have all the time in the world to deal with your soul and your relationship with Almighty God. That is what the man in our Lord's parable is supposed to illustrate. Here Jesus is teaching them about what's going to happen to them, whether they're going to go to heaven or hell on the last day. And the man in the audience listening to God incarnate, all he can think is, teacher, will you tell my brother to give me the share of the inheritance? And that's why he says, there's a man who's got all this money and he doesn't realize he's going to die that day. He's going to face God that night. We work and we claw, we scratch together some, some savings. We try to make a comfortable existence for ourselves. Certainly, yes, plan for the future. Do what you can to guard your wealth. Share it with others. Invest it for the glory of God. Just remember, money is a tool for dominion. It's not to be hoarded or pinched. Nor is it to become an idol to us. Nor are we to be careless with it. It's not to be thrown around. But for the man in the parable, money was seen as his ticket to years of ease and pleasure. His heaven was going to be here for a few years. At last he thinks, I'm not going to have to work like a dog anymore and be stressed about meeting this expense or that expense. I'm not going to have to do that anymore. He builds bigger barns and assures himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And he's taking, talking to himself while he's making plans for the future. You've got plenty of years to enjoy all this stuff. Years of eating, years of drinking, years of being merry. Finally, I can eat out at all my favorite restaurants without having to go to the spreadsheet to see if I've got enough money in that category this month. I can drive the car I've always wanted. I can take the cruises I've always wanted to take. There is in this man apparently no concern for the eternal existence of his soul. He's not thinking about Eternity world without any thinking of a few years. He's not thinking about death and judgment. He's not considering that he will die once. 
at a time that's unknown to him, and then face Almighty God with all of his thoughts, words, deeds, and motives on full display. His mind is only here, only on earth, set on earthly things. And God tells him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. While this man's rejoicing, he's coming to so much wealth, making all these plans to store it up so he can have ease of years and pleasure with no work. He doesn't know he's going to die that night. The New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs, the letter of James, the Holy Spirit says this to us in James 4, 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. The Holy Spirit's saying that to you, to me. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, says the Holy Spirit? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or do that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You know, we're just born procrastinators. We are born procrastinators. Some people procrastinate with studying and schoolwork and papers and things like that. You know, I just did my, my father's funeral. I was talking, talking to my mom. My mom typed all of his papers in college for him the night before they were due. He'd stay up all night writing them. But those are papers. People procrastinate with being right with God. You might die tonight. Foolishness, not wisdom, is bound up in the heart of a child. May our almighty creator give us and all around us wisdom with our souls. We're conceived into danger. We live, we move, we exist in danger at every moment. The Holy Spirit throughout the Bible exhorts us everywhere to think carefully about what you're doing. Ponder the path of your feet. Consider wisely where you go, what you do, what you read, what you look at what you think about, who you befriend, who you get close to. Sin is crouching at your door, God told Cain after he murdered his innocent and godly brother Abel. Sin is crouching at your door and his desire is to rule over you, to take you, to master you, and to destroy you in hell. J.C. Ryle used the wonderful illustration long ago. I've thought about this a lot since I have 37 trees on my lot now. Newly sprouting saplings with your thumb pressed up against your index finger there, you can pull them right out of the ground. When sins are brand new, pretty easy to deal with. She let them sit there and grow and grow. A hundred men pulling on one of those huge 90-foot oak trees in my backyard could not pull them out of the ground. Sin is desiring to master you to get its claws past the barb into your soul, and then it's a bloody, infected mess trying to get them out. When they're full-grown trees, 100 people, 1,000 people can't pull them down. You live in a world of danger, a world of snares in the form of sins. They often capture and destroy people. To be careless, reckless with sin is to hug fire to your chest. It's self-murder. It's to dig a hole and then fall right into it. It's to murder yourself. A violation of the sixth commandment. Learn to call upon the Lord early 
When the temptations are small and weak. When the sprout first comes out of the ground and you can pull it out easily and throw it away. If you wait and allow sin to loiter in your heart, the sapling grows into a tree and it's much harder to uproot. It's much harder to pull down. Call upon Christ the instant that the small and subtle imagination starts to tempt you down that dangerous mental path. Care for your soul and feed your soul on the word of God. Just like you feed your body with food. Consider with me now all the dangers around us. I want to go through a few of these. These are ways we can kill ourselves. We violate the sixth commandment by these. Look at point number six there. The first, sinful pride. Sinful pride is as old as Adam's fall. It's the reason Lucifer fell from paradise, that there is a devil. Pride casts Adam out of paradise. Pride is enthroned in our hearts from conception to the grave. Even when we're born again, we still struggle with it. Pride is what causes people to embrace what my father called the goodness lie. The religion of I. I live a good life. I keep God's commandments. I do this. I don't do that. I am good enough. Those are the lies that are born from pride. Pride is an animal with a metabolism 100 times more efficient than alligators and other large reptiles. You know, an alligator can come up out of the water, eat a chicken, and go take a nap for a month. Pride grows and swells with the smallest compliment, the smallest accomplishment, a little bit of praise, and a breadcrumb can sustain it into robust health for years. When Job's articulate but rather shallow thinking friends and they made their erroneous but eloquent speeches about why, why people suffer in this world, remember when Job mocked them and made fun of them? He, said, he put words in their mouth and says, we are the people and wisdom shall die with us. Pride led the prodigal son to spit in his father's face and demand his inheritance before his father died. Pride is such a problem for the young Don't be proud of your abilities, young people. Don't be proud of your appearance, your intelligence, or your other God-given talents that you have. Pride comes from not knowing yourself as well as you should. And I want to tell you something. As you get older, you will see less and less reasons to be prideful. Ignorance and inexperience are the fertilizers of the seeds of pride. Time and experience will teach you to be rid of sinful pride It's a constant theme of God's word. It's a constant theme of God's word. Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to. Colossians 3, 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Wear it like a coat, like a garment. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Consider Jesus' example when your heart begins to swell with pride for any reason. All that we have, our gifts, our abilities, our, our bodies, our talents, our discipline that we have to develop those talents more, All of those things are given to us by him. Jesus, who had the right to be served by all the world, remember he washed his disciples' feet, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. What are we really? We're clods of dirt from the ground that God breathed life into. 
What do we have that we did not receive from God? So why do we boast at all? Isn't pride the ultimate form of irrationality? I don't exist unless God creates me. I can't do anything unless he enables me to. What do I have to be prideful about? You know, we have a whole category in our theology, in scripture, for the humiliation of Christ. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the curse of death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. If you would not engage in self-murder, I say to you, watch out for sinful pride. The second thing, you see point number two there? Love of pleasure. It's another way we can kill ourselves. Becoming a lover of pleasure. Paul warned Timothy, the the young pastor, 1 Timothy 3, 4, the time's coming, people are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And there's a vast difference between enjoying pleasure at times and being a lover of pleasure. We are not to live for pleasure of any kind. It's one thing to enjoy good food. It's another thing to be enslaved to good food. It's one thing to enjoy beautiful music. It's another thing to be enslaved to music. God gives us these things to enjoy, but not to live for. 1 Peter 2.11 commands us to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Pleasure very often becomes an idol to us. And so I say to you, don't allow earthly and worldly pleasures to become the focus of your existence. Make Christ and his word, his cross, his gospel the beating heart of your affections first, and then you'll be able to enjoy those pleasures far more than you could otherwise without making them into idols. If you want to be guiltless of self-murder, don't be a lover of pleasure. Thirdly, not considering your ways and their consequences. But here again, this is directed to everybody, but especially to the young. So many are guilty of murdering themselves physically and spiritually because they just... Rush in. They don't think things through. They don't ponder the path that they're walking on. They they only see the turns. They don't see the road ahead. So many people have ruined their bodies, ruined their souls. For one simple reason, they didn't hesitate. They didn't stop for a moment and think. As you get older, you learn to do this more than when you're younger. Younger people. Why do you think the older people around you tend to exercise a bit more caution than you. It's the same reason the first time a small child sees a lit candle, what do they do? And all the older people go, no, 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 don't touch that. That's exactly what your gracious creator is doing in scripture. You don't realize the candle's gonna burn you and that it's gonna hurt you. The people that are older have been burned. They've been hurt. They've been scarred up by life. They hesitate more. So many people murder their souls, murder their bodies, kill themselves, violate this commandment just from not thinking. Proverbs 4.26, ponder the path of your feet. Look where you're going. Look what you're thinking about. Look at your affections. In his wonderful book, Thoughts for Young Men, J.C. Ryle said this, Matthew Henry tells a story of a great statesman in Queen Elizabeth's time, who retired from public life in his latter days and gave himself up to serious thought. And his former friends came to visit him. 
and told him he was becoming melancholy. No, he replied, I am serious. For all are serious round about me. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in interceding for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. And why then should not you and I be serious too? Oh, young men, learn to be thoughtful. I say to all people of all ages, older men, middle-aged men, learn to be thoughtful. Learn to consider what you're doing and where you're going. Make time for calm reflection. Commune with your own heart and be still. Remember my caution. Do not be lost merely from a lack of thought. End quote. Think about what you're doing. Fourthly, the fear of man. Here's a big one. So many people murder themselves, murder their own souls because they're afraid of people. People murder their souls because they're afraid of man. They're afraid to stand their ground and do what's right because people might dislike them. They might discard them. They They might make fun of them or oppose them or cast their name out as divisive, evil, nerdy, unloving, whatever. The scripture says, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The great English Puritan Thomas Manton used this glorious illustration. Please weigh this carefully. He says, living fish, living fish may go with the stream at times, but dead fish must always do so. There are plenty of such in all waters. Dead souls are always drifting, drifting, drifting as the current takes them. Their first inquiry, their first question is always, what is popular among men today? God's law is of small account to them, but the unwritten rules of society have a power over them which they never think of resisting. They stand in awe of the praise of fools. Is this a right state to be in? Each one of us must give account for himself before God. Should not each one act for himself? If we follow a multitude to do evil, that multitude will not excuse the evil nor diminish the punishment. Listen carefully. Good men have generally been called upon to walk by themselves. We can sin abundantly by passively yielding to the course of this world, but to be holy and gracious needs many a struggle, many a tear, end quote. I would ask you, you're either a living fish or a dead one. Where are you in the, in the stream? The dead ones, you always know where they are. They're down over there. Whatever direction the stream's going, it's over there. All the dead ones are over there. The fear of man. The fear of man causes many people to violate the sixth commandment. Okay, so does everyone understand why they need Christ now? <laughs> you shall not murder. All lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the lives of others. It forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends thereunto. 
So this morning we've talked about caring for ourselves, not, not murdering ourselves, not seeking our own harm. And we can murder our souls if we value the things of the world supremely above Christ and the things of God. It's, it's self-murder if we're careless and reckless with our souls. And so I say that the time is always now to be right with God. People told me when I was a freshman at Ohio University and used to witness to people, and people would say, I'll take care of that later. I'll do the religious thing later after I've had my fun and sown my wild oats and get married and settle down. Then we'll maybe go to church so people can learn morals. The time to hate sin and repent of it and put your hope of going to heaven in Christ is now because this night your soul might be required of you. And then that's it. That's the only life you've got. That's the only soul you have. Think about those self-murdering sins, pride, love of pleasure, not thinking about where you're going, not considering the consequences of your actions and decisions, the fear of man. We all need Christ, don't we? We need to be clothed in the righteousness of one who never violated any of these. You see why he had to come down from heaven and do this all if any of us was to go to heaven? You know, question 95 of the larger catechism asks, of what use is the moral law to all men? The moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, to humble them in the sense of their, of their sin and misery and thereby help them to a clearer sight of their need of Christ and his perfection. The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. And so I want to leave you this morning with God's love. God's love is so great that he in Christ takes the judicially applied curse of all the ways we violate the sixth commandment against our neighbor and against ourselves by dying for them all. And after writing that great letter to the church at Ephesus, those first three chapters where Paul rejoices in unconditional electing grace, and speaks of our being saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest anyone should boast. He then t- tells the church at Ephesus, I'm praying something very specific for you. I'm praying that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so that's really all I can do is to point you to the Savior that we all need so desperately. We need Jesus' keeping of the sixth commandment to be in our legal account and we need his cross that justice-satisfying death to forgive us of all the ways we have broken it, are breaking it, and will break it. And I pray that someday all of us together will know the width and length and depth and height of a love that's willing to forgive us even for that. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name and praise you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death that has satisfied divine justice against our violations of the sixth commandment toward ourselves. Help us to strive against our sin, to walk in your ways and love you, but to leave our hope of heaven always fixed on the blood and righteousness of Christ alone, in whose name we pray, amen.